Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I am Adrian Henderson. And I'm Andrew Slotnick. We're excited to have Distinguished Professor of Strategy and Innovation, Melissa Schilling. Her works have been recognized and lauded by businessmen and women locally and abroad. Her research focuses on innovation and strategy in high technology industries and her number one best-selling textbook, Strategic Management for Technological Innovation, now in its fifth edition. It has topped charts in the United States, South Korea, Singapore, and China. But not only that, Professor Schilling just published a new book called Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. We are very excited to dig into her inspiration for writing this new book. Sherry actually worked as a producer on this episode and joins us now in the studio to tell us a little bit more about Professor Schilling and her book. Sherry, can you tell us what you uncovered in your research? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me yet again on your show. It was such a pleasure speaking to Professor Schilling prior to this interview and then getting to listen to her actually speak with you all about her new book, Quirky, and her background getting into academia. She is a well-known professor in strategy and innovation here at NYU Stern, but it's really interesting to hear how she got to where she is right now in her profession and how she strung together the biographies of eight incredible innovators from the past century and the past millennium to tell their stories about what makes them tick. So I'm really excited that you all are engaged in this interview and so excited to hear it. We're excited too. Sounds like we have a lot of ground to cover. Additionally, on this episode, we would like to thank Naysham and Craig from Directing from the Booth. Thank you for all of your hard work. We are excited to get started. Flip the switch and let's go. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Adrian Henderson. And I'm Andrew Slotnick. And we are honored to have with us today Professor Melissa Schilling. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about it. So Professor Schilling recently published a brand new book. Congratulations. Thank the you. name of the book is Quirky, the Remarkable Story of the Traits, Foibles, and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators who challenged the world. Yeah, it's a mouthful. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great title. Like, yes. I mean, it's, it tells you exactly what it's about. And for those of us who don't know you, Professor Schilling, do you maybe want to give us a 20-second intro, uh, okay. a little bit about your background? All right. So I've been at Stern for 17 years, and I was at Boston University for four years before that. I got my PhD at University of Washington in Seattle, and I grew up in Colorado. And most of my research is on innovation strategy. So, Adrian, I don't know about you, but I feel as though having Professor Schilling as my strategy professor, that paramount class here at Stern, is really important. I mean, strategy was at least my favorite class first year. Well, yes, of course. I think when you think of business, you have to understand what strategy is. I mean, you, 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 you kind of can't get an MBA without strategy, so... It's but key it, that you're here. But it goes beyond Porter's Five Forces. That's what I've learned, at least coming through your class. <laughs> oh, my God. I hope Brownie so. Brownie points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the strategy class is really about learning how to think well, right? Being a strategic thinker, learning how to think ahead, how to identify what your sources of leverage or advantage are in a situation, 
um, you know, and it's a broad course. It's kind of, some people have argued that, you know, maybe uh, strategy shouldn't be a core course because it's really thinking like a CEO. And not too many people graduate from the MBA program and, and go straight into being a CEO. But right. then again, when are you going to learn those skills? And how will you ever uh, go up the ladder if you haven't learned to think strategically like a CEO? No, I think it's really important. It was something that I was certainly looking forward to. I feel as though you definitely get typical academic classes like accounting and finance, but being able to think in that way um, was super valuable. And when I took your class, you gave a little bit of insight into your project at the time, which was this book, Quirky. Um, maybe can you just talk a little bit about the central idea of the book? We can dive a little bit more into uh, the specifics, but it follows the profiles of eight remarkable innovators. Yeah, yeah. You know, I teach a class called Innovation Strategy or Technological Innovation Management. And uh, around 2010, I also have a textbook in that area that I've since fifth edition. So I, I was very familiar with the research in this area because when you, every time you revise a textbook, you have to read everything that's out there and integrate it and put it in the textbook because the textbook's not about you, it's about the field. So I knew the research pretty well. But in 2010, when Steve Jobs was looking really, really thin, I had a lot of students asking me things like, what's going to happen? How much right. of that innovation at Apple comes from Steve Jobs? Mm -hmm. Is it magic? You know, can it be handed down to a successor? And, and fundamentally, they're also kind of asking, how can I be like that? Can I have that innovation skill? How do you get it? And, uh, you know, I was perplexed that we didn't have the answer to that question. It seemed like such an obvious question to study. Uh, it, it wasn't in psychology research or in the innovation research. And so just for my own benefit, I started studying Steve Jobs. And I already knew Apple really well because I had taught the Apple case for years and I'd written about Apple in my dissertation. But I started studying Steve as a person. I mm -hmm. wanted to know what he was like as a kid and what his parents were like and what his biases were and what his gifts were. And, and the, a weird thing happened, and that is that I started noticing that Steve Jobs had a lot of really interesting commonalities with another innovator who I'd studied before and written a case about named Dean Kamen. And Dean Kamen is the man who invented the world's first portable drug infusion pump, the world's mm -hmm. first portable dialysis machine, a bunch of prosthetic arms. But the things you know him for is the Segway personal <laughs> transporter. I, yeah. We studied that in our marketing class. You did? The, oh, that's the, great. The, the Segway so that's personal a, transporter and everything that Dean's done. That's his most famous invention, but it's not. It's probably not the invention he's most proud of. You know, He's right. done a lot of huge medical innovations. But the weird thing is that he had these really strange commonalities with Steve Jobs. And then I thought, oh, my God, I'm mm. going to do a multiple case study research project. I'm going to set up a protocol to identify, you know, a handful of serial breakthrough innovators. I ended up doing eight. And I'm going to study them all intensely and do what we call a pairwise uh, dyadic comparison where you take every pair and you compare every attribute on them and you surface these themes and then you go through and try to eliminate themes. And uh, I didn't know if I'd come up with anything or not because sure. it's a pretty high-risk strategy. Uh, but I just, you know, I'm a full professor and I thought I'm just going to do it because it'll be fun. And it was incredibly fun. Absolutely. <laughs> and I ended up learning an awful lot. It was, uh, was really a very illuminating and rewarding experience. Sure. Uh, so I've read Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. That's a great one. Really remarkable person. But beyond that, how did you choose the eight innovators that you were going to go after in this research? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I already had Cayman and Jobs because that's where my uh, motivation had begun. 
But then I wanted to set up a way of choosing innovators that would take me out of the process. Because there's a risk as a researcher, if you pick out cases, you might implicitly bias the process by picking people you already know are weird in some way, right? You might be selecting on something that reaffirms some theory that you already have, whether you're, whether it's conscious or unconscious. So I created a protocol that uh, basically scraped the tops of lists of most famous inventor, most famous innovator, got a whole set of people off the tops of these lists, then went through and eliminated anyone that uh, wasn't known for multiple breakthrough innovations. Okay. So, so you can't be a one-hit wonder, because the problem with one-hit wonders is that you it's very hard then to tell the difference between uh, the effect of the person versus the effect of the context. You could have just been at the right place at the right time, right? But if someone's innovated their whole life, there's probably something about them. Uh, and then I eliminated people about whom there weren't multiple biographies because I didn't want to be too influenced by a single biographer. And then I picked people about whom we had lots of first-person content, like quotes from themselves or their family and friends, so that we could hear the voice of the inventor themselves talking about what they believed and what they wanted. And when I was done, there was really only about 30 people left. And there was only one woman, unfortunately, which was a real disappointment to me. And, and I... You know, the process of studying Marie Curie actually revealed to me why there was only one woman and a little bit about what we can do about it, but it was still disappointing at the time. Uh, and then of those 30, I just picked people that were in different technology domains and different time periods so that, you know, we didn't just have people from the electrification era or something like that. Sure, absolutely. Um, Marie Curie, that's a name that I feel like I heard once in my science class years ago in, in high school. Um, but obviously, she did a lot of work with radiation and, yeah. and, and research, particularly with the x-ray. Is that right? Right. Well, it's so she's got a really interesting history. One of the things you should understand about Marie Curie is that she grew up in what's now called Poland, although it was occupied by Russia at the time. And women were not even allowed to go to college in 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 that area that most of Europe didn't allow women into university. And so here's this brilliant woman who wants to pursue science, not even allowed to go to university. And she ends up finding a way to scrape together funds she raised being a governess to go to Sorbonne in France and uh, lived a very meager existence because she was just that determined. And she ended up discovering polonium and then radium and then radio and basically theorized radioactivity as an atomic property. Then she uh, invented a whole bunch of the radioactive isotope isolating uh, methods that we use now for medicine. And then after that, she imported, invented portable x-ray units that she took to the field herself during World War I and is personally attributed with saving over a million soldiers' lives. That's crazy. So, That's beyond incredible. Beyond incredible. And also did all of this at a time when women were not welcome in business and science. Like it, the academy wouldn't let her present her papers because she was a woman. And they didn't want to give her a Nobel Prize because she was a woman. They tried to give it to her husband. And he insisted, what? no, this is Marie's work. And then she subsequently ended up becoming the first person to win two Nobel Prizes in different areas. And most people don't realize this. The second woman to win a Nobel Prize in the world was her daughter. Go figure. That certainly puts what <laughs> what I think I've been able to accomplish into perspective. All Not much right. at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, that's a good good comparable there. <laughs> to, to, to say the least. But um, going back to the book, yeah. um, one thing you discuss in the book 
is the importance of self-efficacy Yeah. and how that really drives all these individuals to be successful. Can you talk a little bit about that, but then also how it intertwines into the strategy that they viewed for whatever endeavor they were going through, whether that was a business endeavor, whether it was creating products in an innovative way? Yeah. Um, I'd really be interested to hear a little bit more about that. That's great. I'm glad you asked about that because self-efficacy is one of these things that we should all aspire to cultivate because it's good not only for innovation, it's good for all kinds of productivity and also for general well-being. Self-efficacy is, you. if you think of the word confidence, confidence is actually a multifaceted dimension that has lots of pieces. And self-efficacy is one kind of confidence that's related to tasks, like your belief and your ability to overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is if, if you met Marie Curie in person, you might not have d- decided that she was particularly confident. Uh, she wasn't very social and she wasn't very outgoing and she wore the same things every day and kept her head down. And But she had incredibly high self-efficacy. Every innovator that I studied had this incredible self-efficacy where they had complete faith that they would overcome obstacles to achieve their goals. And I think the iconic example of that is Elon Musk. Right. 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 Here's a man who, uh, you know, has just sold uh, PayPal for, and, and has about $180 million when he's 28 years old. He could have retired on a beach somewhere and lived a life of leisure. And instead, he asked himself, well, what about the world needs changing? What what do I need to work on? Looks around, sees that NASA has no intentions of going to Mars and is disappointed by that. So he rolls up his sleeves and is like, okay, well, I'll just get us to Mars myself. And he was not trained in rocket science. He trained himself in rocket science by reading books and designed his own rocket prototype. Because, and, you know, the, and the entire industry said, you can't make reusable rockets. It's not possible. We've been trying for 50 years. If we can't do it, there's no way you're going to do it. You're an outsider. You don't know what you're doing. This entire industry has been trying to do this. You can't do it. And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, you know, I think I can do it. And he sketched out a prototype of reusable rocket himself and uh, then found other people to help him enact that. So that's the power of self-efficacy. Self-efficacy it doesn't just make you – sometimes people like to say risk tolerant. They, try, they think ri- that entrepreneurs are, are comfortable with risk. Self-efficacy actually just changes the math of risk completely because if you have total faith that you can overcome obstacles to achieve your goals, a lot of the risk goes away in your mind, right? The things that other people say are impossible just are not impossible for you. I feel as though, at least with Elon Musk, that is so evident in everything we hear or read about him saying, hey, we're going to go to Mars. I think, what was it, like 2019 is what he's talking about recently. Um, And I think that drive is... It's there, right? So the fact that you touched upon in the book and you really talked about it as a central theme, um, in my mind, makes perfect sense, at least from what we've been seeing in the press with one of these eight individuals who at least we watch every day currently um, in the press, to say the least. Yeah. And, you know, Steve Jobs was like that, too. Steve Jobs exerted what people called a reality distortion field where he not only believed he could do the impossible, he would make you believe you could do the impossible. He would just exert his will, and he, he tended to stare at people without blinking. And he had this incredible ability to just persuade people that they not only could but must do the impossible. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a force of nature for sure. But uh, So here's the great thing about self-efficacy. You can learn it. Sure. You can you can get more of it. Like you get it every time you have a win, an early win. All mm-hmm. these inventors had early wins that taught them something about what they were capable of. 
And, you know, that has direct implications for how you manage employees or even how you parent your kids. So, for instance, instead of rushing in to help someone the minute they start to struggle, Mm -hmm. sometimes you want to stand back and say, hey, you got this. I have faith. You can do this. You'll figure it out and give them a chance to get that win, you know. Another way you can uh, build self-efficacy, it's funny because it's so easy. Humans are wired for social learning. We learn what we can do and what we can't do by watching others, right? You don't have to eat the poison berries to realize they'll kill you. You saw somebody else do that, right? So it's a really great skill that a lot of social animals have. And because of that capacity for vicarious learning, we develop self-efficacy when we read hero stories, especially if it's someone we can identify with, right? When Mm -hmm. we hear about somebody overcoming an obstacle and sticking with it and achieving their goal, we internalize part of that and we like, I can do that. I can overcome obstacles and I can achieve my goals if I stick with it. So when you're talking, I kind of hear fearlessness is yeah. what, I'm, what I'm picking up on. When you were doing your research, did you find that as a child they, you know, had some kind of big hurdle of what normal kids would be really afraid of, but instead they were jumping beyond these different leaps? Yeah, you know, some of them learned to be fearless, and some of them, I think, were maybe born kind of fearless. So I'll give you a great example, again, going back to Elon Musk. When he was six years old, uh, this is a story in, in, that you can read about in Ashley Vance's biography, but it's also in my book. Uh, when he was six years old, his parents said, you can't go to your cousin's birthday party. We're doing something else today, and we're not going to take you. And he was really frustrated by that. So he hopped on his bike, and he biked 10 miles across Pretoria, South Africa, which was incredibly dangerous to go to his cousin. 10 miles. I don't know that I've, I don't know, I don't know that I've even walked 10 miles. 10 <laughs> miles, biking 10 miles, biking 10 miles in South Africa. As a six-year-old. But as I was going to say, as a child. By yourself. Now, the thing is, here's an interesting piece about uh, Elon Musk that most people don't realize, uh, and I don't think it is an advanced book, but I write about it. It's uh, Elon Musk's grandfather, Joshua Haldeman, who's the father of his mother, May Musk. Mm. He was a crazy, wild adventurer, too, completely fearless man. He led this uh, political revolt in Canada called Technocracy and then got fed up with Canada and decided to move to South Africa. He'd never even been to South Africa before. But he decided to move to South Africa, kind of out of the blue. He had brought his, he had a single engine plane, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was called a Belair or something. Uh, that He was a private pilot and he had his own plane, a small, inexpensive plane. Assembled the plane when they got the family to South Africa and started flying overhead and picked out where they were going to live from the seat of the airplane. And then would take his kids on these wild adventures in search of the lost city of Kalahari, <laughs> like out in the bush, only eating what they killed. And um, he he was just a really unusual guy. He and his wife, Winifred, they also were the first two people to ever compete in the Algiers to Cape Town road race that they competed in and I think tied for first place in a station wagon. And they are also the only two people to ever fly a single engine plane from Cape Town to Australia. So this was an unusual couple and and uh, you know a lot of it i would attribute to joshua he was an unusual man and raised his kids unusually so who knows if it's nature or nurture but that was a family uh family characteristic yeah i mean i can't help but imagine that that's got to be genetic related to some extent or maybe if you're exposed to driving from algeria to south africa at an early age that's just natural yeah and that's what you pick up on it could be parenting right we don't know for sure like there's a scott haldeman who's uh elon musk's uncle said the expression in their home was that a haldeman can do anything 
his grandfather mm-hmm. always told him a Haldeman can do anything. And, you know, they grow up, they grew up doing adventurous, crazy things that other people didn't do. And so that culture gets handed down. So who knows whether, whether it's genetics or culture, but the good news is that we can learn it. One other thing that I wanted to touch upon back to the self-efficacy point, it's a little bit different than hubris, right? Well, it can look like hubris. Actually, really high self-efficacy can look a lot like hubris. Uh, You know, with Nikola Tesla's uh, life, there were a lot of periods in time where people assumed that what he was expressing was hubris. And they called him a dreamer and a visionary. And back then, being called a visionary was an insult. Uh, you know, think an this, insult. An insult. It wasn't a compliment. When he was, uh, I think he was 12 years old, maybe 14 years old, somebody showed him a postcard with a drawing of Niagara Falls. I remember he's in Croatia at this time. He grew up in Croatia. So somebody shows him a postcard of this giant waterfall in Niagara. And he says to his father, I'm going to build a water wheel to harness the energy of that waterfall. And he's 14 years old. And his father's, you know, understandably like, yeah, sure, kid, that's great. And he did it. (laughs) He actually did it, you know, less than two decades later. So uh, a lot of the things that he said he would do, people didn't believe him. He said he would invent wireless communication, and people thought it was an impossibility. And he invented wireless communication. For years, we thought Guglielmo Marconi invented wireless mm-hmm. communication. And then there was a big patent case that the Navy was involved in shortly after Nikola Tesla's death. And they verified that actually Nikola Tesla invented wireless communication. He invented the AC electrical systems that we use today. He invented the first remote control robots. He invented bunches of systems of fluorescent lights and neon lights. And probably the most amazing thing about him is that he could do the whole thing in his head first and refine a system and finish it off and design it before he ever put it into physical form because he had this incredible photographic uh, memory, also called eidetic memory, visual memory. So he was like a human computer-aided design machine. But I got to say, for a lot of his life, people assumed it was hubris until they saw that he came through on the things that he said he would do. One other thing you note in your book is how all eight of these individuals don't sleep very much. Yeah, seven, seven out of eight. Seven out of eight, I'm sorry. Um, Don't sleep very much and how that is actually a trait that... um, It's a tip-off. It's a tip-off in this situation. Um, And Nikola Tesla slept the least? The least, yes. Go figure. Yeah, so, you know, I would never have even noticed it if it hadn't been Tesla. I, I look back now and I realize how many things I figured out because Nikola Tesla had something... He, had a, he would have characteristics turned up to such an extreme that you couldn't miss them. And, and the spinal tap joke I usually use here is that he had things dialed up to 11. 11. You know, but, uh, Gotta go beyond 10, but <laughs> he, to 11. To 11. He had these characteristics that were so unusual. And once you understood them and you saw how they were related to innovation, then you started to look for them and the other innovators, and you realized, oh, my God, they had them, too. They just didn't have them dialed up to 11. So Nikola Tesla, he he slept two hours when he slept at all. A lot of times he didn't sleep at all. He was a really weird guy. He had lots of symptoms of mania and obsessive-compulsive disorder. He was a lifelong celibate, except that he fell in love with uh, a pigeon who he believed to be his soulmate. He, a pigeon. A pigeon. The, the bird. The bird. He was in love with the bird. Um, and that, I mean, I've... No. No. no <laughs> you won't even let me finish. No, I won't. I can't. Uh, he, no. <laughs> dogs, come on. He, he was an unusual pigeons. guy. 
Yeah, really Pigeons unusual. are smart, though. They they carry they messages places. They, they can, can do math. Yeah. They can vi- they can visualize patterns. I, yes. My wife works in radiology. Really yeah, yeah, they can detect pat- uh, patterns extremely well. It's in, there's interesting research on that. But that aside, so he was a weird guy, and he only slept two hours a night. So then I thought, I'm going to track down how much these other guys sleep. Because mm-hmm. elevated dopamine, which causes mania, causes you to not sleep very much. It also can lead to creativity. It's also related mm-hmm. to executive function and working memory, which can be related to intelligence. So I started thinking, you know, dopamine could really be at play in a lot of these instances. And then lo and behold, it turns out uh, Dean Kamen only sleeps four hours a night. Marie Curie and, and Thomas Edison slept between like four and five hours a night. Benjamin Franklin slept between four and five hours a night. Elon Musk says he sleeps six and a half hours a night, which makes him on the high end in this mm-hmm. set, believe it or not. And Albert Einstein was the only one who slept a good long night. He slept 10 and a half hours a night. But if I went and tracked down what the hourly sleeping pattern is. And in America, it's, it's eight and a half hours. The average American actually sleeps eight and a half hours. And uh, in, of the OECD, the developed countries of the world, the one with the least average is Japan. And that's still seven and a half hours a night. So uh, seven out of the eight innovators in my set mm-hmm. slept significantly less than an average person, which suggests that there might have been a little bit of elevated dopamine going on. Elevated dopamine will make you confident. It'll make you energetic. It'll make you not sleep very much. It'll make thoughts rush at you in in flurries. And, um, you know, too much elevated dopamine starts to look like mania. Really Mm. dysregulated dopamine starts to look like schizophrenia. And then suddenly all the pieces come together because we already knew that genetically, families that create a disproportionate number of creative geniuses also uh, produce a disproportionate number of schizophrenics. Interesting. And we know that uh, genius has also been associated before with manic depressive disorder. So Mm. it, it all kind of makes sense once you start looking at the neurotransmitters that are underlying, you know, divergent thinking and and uh, lowered uh, inhibition of stimuli and faster working memory could all be related to dopamine. So, Adrian, I don't know about you, but I feel as though I have a sweet spot of sleeping between like seven to eight hours. And my question for you, Professor Schilling, if I plan on sleeping four hours, does this mean that Oh, dopamine will be boosted no. in my brain and no. I will be a smarter person or this is a natural occurrence yeah unfortunately I think the the sleeping few hours is a side effect of the elevated dopamine mm, it's, it. it doesn't cause elevated dopamine and if you uh, you know for most people not getting enough sleep is going to diminish their cognitive processing uh, so I wouldn't recommend that at all, all right. uh, but no more, no more late nighters yeah, back to back to seven and a half eight hours to yeah, say it's, the least it's Im- sleeping is important right yep. follow Einstein's lead on that one but it's interesting because you know an insomniac uh, feels tired they don't get the sleep and then they feel terrible they're miserable and they wish Mm -hmm. they could sleep someone with elevated dopamine just doesn't even feel tired that's that's what's fascinating they're operating as if they had a full night's sleep yeah well they're pretty alert actually in some cases they're over alert so when you have elevated dopamine your latent inhibition actually goes down which means you start noticing everything Right, And so Nikola Tesla said, for instance, that when a fly would land on a table, the thud was so loud it would hurt his ears. Interesting. Uh, he, he would feel the vibration of a train 100 miles away. He was sometimes tormented by yeah. those stimuli, which is also something you hear about sometimes with autistic children. Mm-hmm. So there's an interesting connection there. Um, but you can imagine how if, if you had that too high and you couldn't screen out any stimulus at all, now that does start to look a lot like schizophrenia. So as we move away from quirky into some of your other work within the strategy sphere, 
can you talk a little bit about um, your consulting style? I know you consult a lot of different businesses on a lot of different topics related to corporate strategy, innovation, et cetera. What have you discovered in your research that you've really built upon when you're speaking to these companies? I know there's a lot of companies out in Silicon Valley that you frequently tell us in class that you're coming back from and working with. What, how are you using your research yeah. to inform that work? Okay. So, uh, you know, a lot of my research has been on technology trajectories, and that's the idea that a technology follows a path through time. And if you pay attention to that path over time, you can see the inflection points, and you can see when certain technology trajectories, you know, I'm using my hands here, which I'm now realizing on radio, probably not very effective, but... (laughs) But, <laughs> we'll, we'll get a camera in here one time. Don't worry. <laughs> you, when you follow multiple technology trajectories, you can start to see which one's going to cut the other one off. And you can anticipate uh, discontinuous innovation. You can anticipate inflection points. You can anticipate when you're overinvested in a given technology. So a lot of my research has been on that. And, you know, I do things around helping firms understand how to prioritize their efforts, how to figuring out the future of innovation in their domain, how to make good choices among what to invest in and what not to invest in. Uh, I've, you know, I've done a lot of stuff around modularity. So when, you know, IBM was coming out with e-commerce on demand, they had to think through what pieces to keep proprietary and what pieces to let other vendors provide. That's really a question of how modular you want your system to be. So I worked with them on that. Uh, you know, I, one thing I don't use is a lot of traditional frameworks. Interesting. Because once you've internalized the frameworks, you don't really need them anymore. You can see all those strategic dynamics. You just see them. They just fall right out of a scenario without using the framework. But frameworks are really valuable for learning how to do that. Like you use a framework over and over again, you will internalize that way of thinking and then eventually you won't need the framework anymore. So when you're consulting, you know, I don't usually have to uh, create PowerPoint charts and stuff for, for companies. I help them think through a problem and when you help someone get an insight on a problem, they, they can see it, right? They know it right away. Right, exactly. It'd be really interesting to just kind of get more behind who Professor Schilling is. Can you just... You know, share a little bit about what brought you to Stern. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm. I'm actually. I feel like it's. It was very unlikely that I would be a professor at Stern uh, because I grew up in a cabin in the mountains of Colorado. You know, I was. Wait, wait, wait. That's very, very different. I want to hear more about growing up in the cabin. Yeah. So my mom was a computer programmer and a bit of a recluse, mm-hmm. and she was. Um, you know, she divorced very early in my life, and I was an only child of a single woman, and we lived in a cabin without heat in in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, and uh, we didn't have any gender roles in our home because it was just two women, and mm-hmm. we had to, my mother was, like, the most fiercely independent person you've ever met. Wow. You know, she would, uh, we would chop firewood and repair the roof and change the oil in the car. Every, we had to do everything ourselves. We didn't even have trash service. You know, we had to make sure that we burned everything and recycled or composted just about everything. So it was a very uh, wilderness lifestyle growing up. I went, my elementary school had 18 kids in it from kindergarten through sixth grade. Uh, so it was more like a family, really, than a mm-hmm. school. And, uh, you know, when I wanted to go to college, she said I had to go to University of Colorado because it was in-state and it didn't cost that much. And and um, so I said, sure. So I went to University of Colorado, you know, and I was a good student, but I didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't have a lot of guidance. Uh, at some point, I figured out that I loved to think and to learn and to read and to write. I actually, 
I actually wanted to study dolphin communication. I had read this article about the Lewis Harriman Dolphin Lab in Hawaii, and I was captivated. You know, I had always loved animals. I grew mm -hmm. up, you know, having animals instead of siblings. Lots <laughs> of dolphins. Lots of dolphins in Colorado. <laughs> well, I didn't have any dolphins. I didn't have any dolphins, but maybe that's why I glamorized them in my mind. But so I wanted to study animal communication. And so I went to the dean of the biology program at University of Colorado, and I told him my grand plan to become a mm -hmm. zoologist and to study gorillas and dolphins and higher communication in, in uh, mammals. And he said to me, he just looked at me and kind of laughed, and he said, you know, there's no jobs in that. There are absolutely no jobs. If you get a PhD in zoology, you'll be lucky to land a job working with <laughs> earthworms. And I was very discouraged. Uh, and then it's my mother, who is, who's a brilliant and unconventional woman, um, basically said, you know, Melissa, you stay in business because in business you can do anything. Mm -hmm. You can study anything you want in business. So I got my PhD in business. And uh, she was right because I'm actually studying cognition now, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like mm -hmm. studying the cognition of innovators, which I'll just think of as, as a special kind of gorilla or dolphin. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I also didn't picture myself in New York. You know, I'm, I'm from the mountains of Colorado. I didn't picture, the first time I came to New York, I thought it seemed like a horrible place. <laughs> Welcome what was to the horrible? club. <laughs> Welcome to the I club. I mean, the, it was scary. It was, there was the graffiti and the, mm -hmm. you know, ne never seeing the, sky, the, the horizon because of the buildings everywhere. And So you, you did mention something a minute ago about your mom said to stay in business. So yeah. what were you doing that kind of like mirrored business oh, a little yeah. bit before that? So my undergraduate degrees where I had an undergraduate degree in both business and biology. And uh, I started in business initially because I didn't, I liked everything. Mm -hmm. I couldn't decide what to study. And, and so I studied business and biology. And then uh, I thought I'd get a PhD in biology, but I ended up getting a PhD in business. What was the, the journey to academia like? Like what made you decide that this is something I want to do formally? Yeah. Uh, you know, I went to work for Procter & Gamble and uh, it was considered a very good job offer in Colorado to get an offer at Procter & Gamble. And um, no offense to everybody working for Procter & Gamble, it's a really great company, but I hated that job. I realized that I was being paid to use my mouth more than my mind. And I went to my mm -hmm. boss after, after the first year or something, and I said, I, I want to go back and get my MBA. Will you guys sponsor me to get my MBA? And he said, no, you know, we, we're gonna, anything you need to know, you're going to learn here. None of that stuff in school is, it matters anymore. And I looked at him, and I suddenly realized it mattered to me. Mm -hmm. right. I, I loved being in school and learning. And at that moment, I basically decided to leave Procter and & Gamble and, and go back to the PhD program. Now, I got super, super lucky because it suited me so well. And it, it's, a, it's actually a, a hard life in some ways uh, going into academia because a lot of people wash out. Like A lot of people wash out of the doctoral program, and a lot of people wash out as junior faculty. It's very tough to get tenure. It's very competitive. Very, very competitive. And you also get, you know, you're pummeled with negative feedback. You get a, an awful lot more negative feedback than positive feedback in this job because the review process on journal articles is is scathing and teaching evaluations can often be scathing and you know I'm not a particularly thick-skinned person so there have been times when I found it very very hard but but I love learning and I love writing and I love teaching so I and I ended up being reasonably good at those things at least the learning part <laughs> and, and I I feel like the luckiest person in the world to have found a job that that suits me so well. You know what's an interesting thing that uh, I know they, they could probably find a way to teach students about this, but students are wildly heterogeneous, yet they perceive themselves as homogeneous. 
So, for instance, students will assume, I, when you read evaluations, for instance, and, and mm -hmm. any professor can tell you this, one student will write, we all like it better when it's just case discussion. And another student will write, we all like it better when it's just lecture. And one student will write, we all like it better when you don't let people talk so much and you cut them off and keep the class on point. <laughs> and another student will write, we all like it better when you let the discussion be more freewheeling. Like, everybody thinks they're speaking for the group, but they're wildly heterogeneous. Yeah. And then that's really one of the challenges of teaching is trying to find a way uh, to meet the needs of heterogeneous learners. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're constantly trying to develop ways to do that. Because some people are more visual and some people are more auditory. And some people like structure and some people hate structure. And it's just everybody's really very different. And you've got one classroom that you're trying to, to, to teach everyone in. So how do you take in that um, course evaluation? What do you keep? What do you implement? And what do you say that's... I'm going to disregard all of that. Yeah. I mean, most people would say if you get if you get 10 people who say we like the cases best and you get 10 people who say we like the lecture best, uh, most people are going to assume, okay, well, then I'm doing it about right because I'm in the middle. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think that's true. I think that means that 10 people didn't get what, well, 20 people mm -hmm. didn't get what they wanted. I would really... Uh, one of the things I want to do in the future is to think about ways to enable people to self-select into particular learning experiences that meet their needs better. And I don't know how to do it exactly yet. Mm -hmm. I'm still working on that. But uh, I think we have a lot of evidence that if people get to self-select into the type of learning experience that works for them, they're going to learn more and they're going to be happier. So, Professor Schilling, beyond Stern, beyond strategy, we heard that you're also very involved in the national snowboarding. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, when I was in college, I started, I was a founding member of National Snowboard Incorporated, and we uh, promoted snowboarding when snowboarding was a brand new sport. We would teach snowboarding lessons and host uh, half-pipe competitions and, mm -hmm. and slalom races. And I would travel around the country. I ran the tour for a while, and we would travel around the country in this big truck painted Good and Fruity Snowboard Jam Series because Good and Fruity Candy was our sponsor. Wait, what's Good and Fruity Candy? It's like Good and Plenty, but, okay. but fruit-flavored. Oh, okay, got it. Yes, so... <laughs> like Mike and Ike's. Yes, very similar okay, to Mike and Ike's. We were sponsored by Good and Fruity Candy and, and Mountain Dew and this type of potato chips with the jalapenos in it. So we really lived on that for for months out of the year. It, it does a number on your gastrointestinal system. Say, that is, <laughs> that that is a Mountain Dew mixed with anything, yes. <laughs> that is a diet, to say but, the least. Yeah, so I had a team of instructors, and we would have to drive between resorts, and we would tend mm -hmm. to drive overnight. And the crazy thing was that since I was sort of the manager of the tour, and I was the only woman, and I was the oldest person on the tour, I was, uh, you know, by definition, well, there's a bad word I was going to use. Am I allowed to use bad words here? No, but mm -hmm. shred the gnar, is that what you're looking no, for? No, I was Anyway, it was really challenging. It actually taught me uh, to let things roll off my back like a duck, mm -hmm. you know, to... Uh, because, for instance, Resilience. we would drive for 20 hours, and in that 20 hours, different people have sleeping shifts, but I was the only one that ever filled the gas. Like, they would never fill the gas tank. So even if it was my sleeping shift, I would have to get up and go fill the gas. I can Somehow they just they knew they could count on you to do this. Yeah, I was, I was like the mom they resented. You oh, know? gosh. Yeah, <laughs> I was, was going to say, are they all from, like, Oregon or New Jersey, the two states where you can't fill up your own gas, I feel as though? Or? They were just rascals. <laughs> there you, you go, know. rascals. Yeah. Growing up in New Jersey, I didn't learn how to uh, 
pump Sub-pump. gas until I moved to Virginia, and it was the most foreign concept to me. Really? Yeah. So, wow. This is a thing in New this Jersey. This is a thing. Now I think they're the only state, just to go off on a tangent, I think they're the only <laughs> state where you can't pump your own gas. They you have know, full service. Honestly, this is one of the advantages of electric cars is that we won't have to pump gas exactly. anymore. Mm-hmm. Because nobody likes to pump gas. Nobody it's likes to pump It's miserable. Gas. Just plug it in. That's, that's that's the easy way to get around it, for sure. Nice and clean. Do it in your garage. <laughs> so, <laughs> Professor Schilling, thank you so much again for coming on the show. In closing, what's next? What are what what are your plans? Obviously, you just released this wonderful book. Congratulations oh, thank again. Thank you. Um, any other tidbits of research that's on the horizon as to what we could be expecting from you? Yeah, well, you know, um, I'm promoting the book right now, which is keeping me kind of busy, but I've also got some projects on outlier innovations, which are like big, unusual innovations that seem very different from anything we currently know. And uh, we're studying those innovations to see if there's a way to predict who comes up with outlier innovations and, and what enables them. I'm also doing some work on how platforms, uh, platform strategy, how you, if you're a platform, how you decide which complements to boost and promote. Because really a complement, like if you think an iPhone or iOS or a video game system, it's in a position to turn some of its complements into stars. Sure. By putting an award on it or putting it in front of the customer base, put it, giving it a central location, you know, on that iOS picks, Apple picks uh, uh, banner. And they have to... When they make those choices about who to promote, it's not just about the best game or the best compliment. It's also about the compliment that's going to make the ecosystem more valuable right. and the compliment they can capture the most value from mm-hmm. because it's exclusive or, or they have a good royalty arrangement. So I'm studying that right now. I have a paper on platform strategy right now. Certainly a hot topic. I feel like we're touching upon platform strategy in a lot of classes, at least in my fintech oh, class. We've been pretty hitting popular it as well. right now. Yeah. Um, Again, Professor Schilling, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for uh, having me. This was really fun. Looking forward to um, hearing more about the book. The name of the book, again, is Quirky, The Remarkable Story of the Traits, Foibles, and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators Who Changed the World. Thank you very much. Excellent. Great to be here. Thank you.